You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? So let me ask you guys a question. How many of you are early risers? What are you doing at 12.30 service? That's the real question. Okay, listen, I, um, I, you guys are my people. I am, a, I am an early riser, uh, not by choice. I have been conditioned to be an early riser by my son Xander, who was playing guitar over here a second ago. And, um, oh, thanks. He's in the back, so he's just soaking it in. So, um, but no, for the first 10 years of Xander's life, he would wake, me, he would wake up uh, every morning at 5.45. And then he would proceed to wake me up at 5.46. With just like, Dad, Dad, uh-huh, yeah. Hey, uh, I'm awake. And I'm like, congratulations. And um, so anyway, so that was every day um, for the first, you know, 10 years of his life. And so now he's, a, he's almost 15 and he's sleeping in, and I'm the one walking around in the dark like a moron before six in the morning. So yeah, it's, it's a problem. But anyway, so one Sunday morning, seven-year-old Xander wakes up at 5.45, comes into my bedroom, wakes me up at 5.46. Dad, dad, yeah, yeah, I'm awake. Oh, okay. And then he hops into bed. Now, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, I didn't have to, it was a Sunday that I wasn't teaching, so I was still coming to church, but I didn't have to be there quite so early um, but sleeping in was not quite in the cards because the guy who wrote I'm easy like Sunday morning did not have children. Uh, because if you have young kids, there is nothing easy about Sunday morning with kids trying to get them to church. So anyway, um, so my son wakes me up and he, then he climbs into bed. And, and uh, so like I said, it's 546, 547. And, and he's like, uh, dad, dad, can I ask you a question? Uh-huh. Uh, why don't you like Mexican food? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I just don't. And now, before you get crazy on me, uh, my wife has explained to me that I do like some Mexican food. I just haven't found any of that food in Florida. So Mexican food in Florida, I definitely do not like. And so, but he says to me, and then he says, um, okay, so you don't like Mexican food. Did you like the Mexican food that we ate last night? And I said, no. And he said, then why did you eat it? I said, because your mom loves Mexican food. And when you're that beautiful, you should get whatever you want whenever you want it. And um, thank you. And uh, well, he wasn't deterred by that or impressed by that statement. And so he's like, oh, okay. Um, so what kind of food do you like? I said, well, Cuban food is my favorite. He said, oh, okay. Uh, when did you start liking Cuban food? I said, well, probably since birth because I'm Cuban and I eat Cuban food every day from birth until the day before I got married. And, um, and, and, uh, and, he, and he says, okay. He says, hold on, you're Cuban? And uh, yes, and by the way, so are you. And uh, you're half Cuban, because you're my son. He goes, oh, okay, so I'm half Cuban, half Mexican. And I'm like, no, what would make you think that you're Mexican? He goes, well, mom eats Mexican food a lot. And I'm like, no, you don't become more of that nationality the more you eat. Like, you don't get it more with every bite. You're just, your mom's not, Mexican, um, and, and so anyway, and I don't know what he was thinking as far as how, anyway, but 
By the way, just so you know, my wife is Cherokee Indian. That's her background. And so, so if the church doesn't work out, we're going to start a casino. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I like that joke more than I'm supposed to. So just FYI. So <laughs> and uh, but now here's why I tell you this is that uh, you can't escape who you are. Now, all of us have the ability, and all of us have this, we all have the ability to share things that impact people's lives, even potentially change their lives, but they've got to be part of who you are. Now, I, we can all share facts with people, but that doesn't usually change people's lives. It's just some random fact that you shared, but it's when the fact, it gets attached to a life, and that life is transformed. Man, now it has a totally different understanding. Now, let me, let me give you an example. How many of you are aware of this, if I can see by show of hands? How many of you know this, that eating a, a lot of sugar is not a good thing? Right, okay, see? Almost everybody, the people who didn't lift their hands are people, you're like, you've had too much sugar. You're like in a comatose state, but you're gonna catch up. So, but now, but if you just say that, right, we all know that, and I'm guessing you didn't learn that yesterday or the day before. You've known this for a little while. So, but what happens is, is that that fact doesn't really impact us. However, you meet someone who stops eating sugar and they lose 50 pounds and they don't have inflammation anymore and all these good things start happening in their lives and now somehow that stops just being a fact because somebody's life changed, now it becomes this life-changing reality and it really impacts us. The same thing is true when we talk to people about Jesus. People might be open to certain facts about Jesus' life and teaching. They might even um, intellectually agree to certain parts of the gospel. But the thing that people cannot argue with, the, the thing that really transforms people is when there's these truths of the gospel that get attached to a person. And that person's life changes. I mean, it's impossible to, cha to argue with someone's life who's been radically transformed. In fact, when the Apostle Paul, um, in not our next study, but the following study, he's going to go to a city called Corinth. He's going to plant a church there, and then he's going to write these two really important letters in the New Testament to the, to the Corinthians. And he says, in the second letter, he says this. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And, and what the point that he's making is, is saying this. He's telling them, some people are never going to read the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John but they're going to read the gospel according to you. And your life being changed is what's going to ultimately impact them. People who come to faith in Jesus usually have an encounter with someone who has come to know Jesus and their life has been impacted by Jesus. And that's what influences them to decide to start following Jesus. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. Paul and his team are going to travel to three different cities preaching the gospel. And people are going to respond in different ways, some good, some bad, some more violent. And what Paul is going to share is what he's experienced and communicate that to these groups of people. And listen, if we want to be people who impact others, we need to watch how Paul shares the gospel and models and for us to model what it is that he does. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and, um, or Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as was his custom, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating 
that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great number and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. If you pause there and give me your attention, if we're going to see people's lives impacted and changed, number one, things we need to do, number one, I need to know how to communicate. So I want to show you, let's just, because it was a couple weeks ago that we were together. Let me show you a couple of things that we can see our trusty map. So if you remember the last time we were together, Paul was in Philippi. And if you remember, Paul was preaching there and then Paul gets arrested. And then after Paul is arrested, uh, there's an earthquake. The Philippian jailer comes to know Jesus. It's this incredible thing. And then Paul leaves Philippi, passes through and... uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, gets to Thessalonica, which is the city he wants to get to. This is one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire in this region, which is why Paul doesn't stop at the smaller towns. He goes there first, knowing that if he could set up shop in a larger city where churches would be started, the gospel would then go out from the big cities into those smaller towns as well. And he models and he talks about that when he writes a letter to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he says this. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So that's Paul's big picture strategy for evangelizing an entire region uh, of, of the world in this part of Eastern Europe. But now, What I want to focus on is in the earlier verses of how Paul's evangelism strategy, of how he dialogues just with people one-on-one or in groups. And he does three things that I think are really important for us to understand in our conversations with people who maybe aren't believers or have questions about faith or whatnot. The first thing he does, if you're a note taker, is that he dialogued with people. Now, the reason that I say that is because uh, he wasn't arguing with people. It says in the verse 2 that he reasoned with them. The Greek word there is dialogamai, which is literally where we get the English word dialogue. But they were just talking. And this is an important point because you don't argue people into the kingdom of God. Now, you ask questions and see if people are open. But if they aren't open, then you've got to pray and live the kind of life that makes people curious about the faith and then pray for an opening when they are ready to talk. But not only is he dialoguing, the second thing that he did is that he opened people's minds. It says that he reasoned with people from the scriptures and then he was explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer. That word explaining is this Greek word, um, epapha, that is used in the gospel of Mark chapter seven when Jesus sees this deaf guy and um, he heals him, and he says, Epapha, that means literally be opened. And so this same word is this idea of explaining is kind of like opening up. Like, let me, ex- let me open up the points that I'm making so it's clearly seen and heard. Now, let me tell you what, Christian, what so many Christians do that is totally ineffective in reaching people that we care about with the gospel. When someone says, oh, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe. I don't believe Christianity. I don't like the Bible, whatever. And... Um, What we do as Christians is that we say, okay, here we go. And we just vomit every piece of information that we've ever heard on that topic on them. And and that's just, it's not a good strategy. When somebody says, you know, I don't believe in Christianity. I'm not, you know, Jesus, whatever. Like, slow down. Start asking some questions. So somebody says that, say, wow, okay. Um, Why don't you believe that? 
What, what, are, what, what, what would cause you not to believe that? And so what happens is, now listen, the truth of the matter is most people haven't thought through these things completely and they don't realize that their worldview isn't totally making sense. But if you will slow down and ask some questions, you will help people get there um, and then kind of discern if they're open or not. Because I'm telling you so often, you start asking some questions and like, well, what do you believe about? Well, you know the Bible. Okay, tell me what you know, what you know about the Bible or have questions about. And then you kind of start narrowing it down as to what the real issue is. And, um, and, and so instead of being a little more accusatory and, and aggressive, you can just ask questions and now it lowers the temperature and, and people just then start sharing, well, you know, this is what I say, I read this or I heard something and it just makes it very conversational and once again, it lowers the temperature in the room. Um, and I think you learn this a lot as a parent. When, uh, when my son was born, my daughter Mia could not have been happier because um, she was under the impression that her little brother was basically her plaything. And so she treated little Xander like um, he was one of her dolls. And so one day, so she's like three and Xander's less than a year old. And um, I, one day I saw her and she was carrying him around. And I don't know what kind of rules you have in your house, but one of our rules is three-year-olds don't carry infants. That's just a rule we have. And uh, because we don't want to spend all of our time in the ER. So anyway, so, um, so I was telling her, I'm like, listen, you just can't walk around with them, okay? And uh, she had a very hard time o obeying that rule. And so she'd do it when we weren't looking. And, uh, and so one day, Carrie has to step out and do something. So I'm watching the two, the two kids. And um, I walk out, I'm walking out of the living room, and I say, Mia, don't pick up your brother. I got to go here for a second. Okay, two minutes later, I hear Xander make a noise that he wasn't crying, but he made a noise I've never heard him make. And you know this as parents, there are certain alert levels that you, like, if everything gets really loud, that's an alert level. If your kids are totally silent, that is also an alert level. Because you're like, whoa, if it's too quiet, there's a problem. And then there's like, but there's like a moderate volume that you're okay with. But then when you hear something you're not used to, that's another. Basically, you're always on alert is what I'm saying. And so anyway, so, <laughs> so what happens is, is that I go back into the living room and um, I see Xander. He's making a noise because he is on the couch, crawling on the couch. And by the way, you know, kids at that age, they don't have any depth perception, so they're just going to crawl right off. And so I see that. I run over. I grab him. I put him on the floor. And I say, Mia, um, how did your brother get on? See, you're not, I'm not, I'm like, hey, um, how did your brother get on the couch? I don't know, Dad. I'm not really sure who's to know how anything happens. You know, who knows what she said to me at three years old. And so I said, uh, well, I do remember is saying, Mia, there's really only three options as to how this could have happened. Let's run through them together, shall we? Um, number one, you picked him up. Number two, in addition to learning to crawl, he's also learned to fly. <laughs> and number three is human teleportation. And I said, so which do you think it was? And she's like, fly, dad, he can fly. He's, I, I didn't want to tell you, but he can fly. And so now, listen, and this is the point is that <laughs> whether this was some Watergate level cover up to hide uh, their actions, the reality is, is that when you will just ask questions, it just lowers the temperature and things, more things get revealed. And then here's the third thing, right? It says he reasoned from the scriptures that he was dialoguing with people. Um, he was um, explaining this idea of the Christ having to suffer. That is that he was opening people's minds. And the third thing is that he presented the truth. Um, that's where it says that he demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer. This is such an interesting word in the Greek language because 
it usually refers to something being set before you. It's, it's used in, um, remember Luke is the writer of, the, of uh, the book of Acts. He's also the writer of the gospel of Luke. And he uses this same word in Luke chapter nine to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and how the, the loaves and fish were, um, were spread out. Were, they, they were presented, uh, set before the people that were, that were gonna eat. And this is the same word that he uses about how the truth is presented and uh, set out before uh, the people. Now, and the reason why this is important is because people have to decide to follow Jesus for themselves. You can't force people to follow Jesus um, is arrange a meeting. That's it. And, and, and present the gospel. That's it. How does it work out for Paul when he uses this strategy? A lot of people start following Jesus. All, if you notice in verse 4, there was um, lots of people are persuaded. Multitudes of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women start following them. And listen, if we will do this with our kids, if we'll do this with the people we work with, with our friends, people that are skeptical or have questions, I'm telling you, we will get much better results. And then here's the question that comes up sometimes. Yeah, but what if someone that I love, um, they don't want to have these questions. They just don't care. They don't care about faith. They don't care, but just want to live their life and whatever. And, and, and so one of the things, I mean, you got to pray for opportunities, but one of the things that you've got to do is you've got to show them that they do care. They just don't realize it. And I think that's really vital. And this is the general problem with atheism. What typically happens with, and I've met very few atheists in my life. I've met several people who told me they were atheists and, um, we had to amend that definition or that self-identification within a couple of minutes. Because what happens is, so many people that profess to be atheists, they want all the benefits of Christianity without any of the accountability. So if you're an atheist, here's the, here's the deal. According to this worldview, your life, ha life has no meaning whatsoever. Life has no meaning, and truth be told, it's completely deterministic, which means you don't have any control over your life, right? To quote Richard Dawkins in his book, A River Out of Eden, uh, all there is is DNA, and we dance to its music. That's it. You are totally conditioned over millions of years um, to act the way that you do. But if you say, you know, I'm an atheist, but I love my wife, uh-uh. You don't love your wife. You, you enjoy the chemical reaction that happens when you are around her. So if you're, if, you're gonna, if you're an atheist, don't tell me that you're going to ask your girl, tell your girl you love her and you're going to marry her. You don't believe in love. And I don't know why you care about a social construct like marriage. But here's, here's what you need to say if you do want to marry her. I've written out a script for you. And here's what you say. If you want it to be in, in accordance with your worldview. Hey, baby, when I'm around you, my production of dopamine goes way up in my brain. I thought we could have the same address so we can keep my endorphins working overtime. And then she responds like, oh, my hippocampus is lighting up right now. So the answer is yes. And I'm like, hey, save that talk for the bedroom. And uh, now, now, once again, that is in keeping with that worldview. But nobody wants that, right? Because first of all, that's weird. And uh, nobody wants to be talked to like that. But the problem is this. If you have ever cried to music, that's not supposed to happen. If you evolved over millions or billions of years, music shouldn't have any effect on you. Seeing a full moon, uh, seeing a sunset, seeing the Grand Canyon shouldn't move you. In fact, Richard Dawkins says that the only reason that the Grand Canyon moves us is because our ancestors found food there and that information is printed in our genetic code. So like whatever the ancient version of a Big Mac is, like we know it's there. And that's why we love it. It's also the reason we love Big Macs. So, but 
I don't know, that's kind of a lame answer if you ask me. But my point is this. If you will ask questions and not just kind of like go for the jugular, if you'll just ask questions and dialogue, you know what you'll find? I'm telling you this because I've just seen this happen time after time after time after time is that you're going to find that all of these other things that people put up are just a smokescreen for really just a handful of reasons. And the main one is, well, I used to believe that, and here's what it comes down to. It comes down to, I had an expectation of God, and he did not meet me on demand. I live in an on-demand world, and I wanted God to meet me on demand, and when he didn't, I walked away. That's ultimately what it came down to. And, and listen, but if we can cut through all the objections, and here's the cool thing, is that if we can finally get to that, which is the real reason, you and I can do a lot of ministry with someone who is now open to say, look, what I'm dealing with ultimately is disappointment. Okay, now we can have a real conversation about that. So this is, I think, what's so vital as Paul starts talking to people. So things are going well in Thessalonica until now. Look what happens. It says, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason was, has harbored them and these are all acting in contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. By the way, that's pretty accurate. Uh, and they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word in all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and not just a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they also came there and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go by sea, uh, to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And if you pause there and give me your attention. All right, if we want to impact people's lives, then we, t we said that we got to know how to communicate. But the second thing is, is that we need to, uh, we need to become students, right? I need to become a student. What do I mean by that? Paul leaves, Paul leaves Thessalonica and he arrives in Berea, which is kind of the next town over. And, and he says that the Bereans were more fair-minded or literally it's more honorable than those in Thessalonica. And here's the reason why. Because of their attitude towards truth, they tested what was being taught. Doesn't mean they rejected it. It says that they received the word with gladness. They were very happy to hear the word taught. But then they went back and did their own research to see if what the things that Paul was saying was true. Now, this is so important, especially in the world that we live in, because we, we live in a time where um, people want to be like Instagram theologians, and it's like, you know, they're going to tell us everything we've been missing um, about the Bible and claim to know a lot about the Bible, and truth be told, very few are worth listening to. Many of them have no formal training, and it shows... Um, and by the way, I don't know that you necessarily have to have formal training. Um, and I've said that in years past. 
I do believe that in the world that we're living today, we need pastors who are trained and can communicate the truths of the Bible in the complex world that we're living in. But we live in a world where you're three clicks away on YouTube from watching someone start twisting the Bible or try, for the purpose of either discrediting it or using it uh, for their own selfish purposes. And my general rule that I take, whenever I'm, uh, you know, someone says, well, you know, I, I believe this, is, this, so this is kind of like my first line of defense. Um, because just because I don't agree with something doesn't mean it's like total heresy. It just might mean I don't land there. And so there are areas within faith and theology where um, you might not agree. It's still an orthodox view, but you just may not agree with it. And there may be a couple of different positions of where churches land. But if there is no denomination, no Bible college, no seminary that teaches that, you're probably on very shaky ground. And, and I also recognize this because people, will, I, I've shared that before and they're like, yeah, but how am I supposed to know that? Like, that's not my game. Like, I don't know what like our Bible college is like putting out like, lists of stuff they believe in. I'm like, no, not exactly. Um, and you know, what do I do if I'm a younger Christian? So there's three things that I think are really important that'll really help you as far as, because you're going to hear things and I know what happens. You become a Christian and you're like, oh man, this guy's talking about the Bible and I'm hungry to learn. I'm hungry to grow. So here's three things that I think will help if you're a note taker. Number one is I need to accept the Bible as my authority. And that is that People have a problem with that sometimes because what they'll th say is like, no, 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 I like the Bible and I will go to it as one of my sources when I'm making a decision. And what that means is, is, is that a person generally, uh, it means that I'm going to read the Bible and if the Bible says what I was already planning on doing, then that's what I'm going to do and I'll say I did it because the Bible said it. If, if it says the exact opposite of what I'm going to do, then I'm probably just going to do whatever I've emotionally decided I'm going to do because my feelings are basically the ultimate authority in my life. Now, your feelings are wonderful and they're God-given, but let's be honest, our feelings are for the most part unreliable. Here's why. Because your feelings are changing all the time. And there's all this kind of outside stimuli that's changing your feeling. And I'm telling you, every single one of us have had one of these moments where we are talking with someone and we're like, if things are getting intense and like, no oh, man, I really think this is really important. And then we realize like we haven't eaten anything. And then we eat something and you're like, no, man, it's all good. Like what happened? Somehow like a Snickers bar changed everything. Like how is that? Why? Because listen, your feelings are good. They're just not, they certainly can't be number one on the reason why we're going to do things. And sometimes um, we're building a disaster, but we don't realize it. That's why to grow spiritually or grow to spiritual maturity, you've got to accept the Bible as your authority and do what it says. Even when we're not sure, we've got to say, God, I'm going to trust you. The other thing that I think is important, especially when it comes to teaching that kind of pops up, especially stuff that pops up on our phones, is um, you got to realize that every verse of the Bible has a context. Um, one of the most dangerous things that people do is that they'll take one verse out of the Bible and kind of build a whole teaching or theology on it. And um, I mean, it is, it is um, most people when they go, you know, weird, it's usually that. They took this one verse and they kind of built a whole thing on it. And because, but every verse of the Bible has a context. Now, let me give you one, which is one of my favorites, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I only based my understanding of this verse on social media, I would think that Paul wrote this verse talking about CrossFit. 
um, because every person who's going to lift something heavy is like, Philippians 4.13, baby. And, and then they're, they're and, and it's like, oh, I, I didn't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that this was um, about, you know, deadlifts. Who knew? Um, and so, but, and by the way, and people would be like, uh, and, and they just, you know, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I recite this verse or how much I believe this verse. Uh, I can do all things through Christ. I cannot dunk a basketball. And it doesn't matter how much I say this verse out loud while I'm running and how much I say this verse while I'm jumping. I'm telling you, I'm not dunking. All right. And so, and that tells us that this verse probably means something else than most people think it does. And by the way, you don't have to be a theologian to understand it. All you got to read are the two verses above it and you'll totally understand. Here, let me, let me show you. Look what happens. Philipp this is two verses above, Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and you're like, well, that had nothing to do with running a marathon. And uh, because it doesn't, okay? Now, what's the context? Paul is saying, based on my situation, I've been in the extremes of life. I've had moments where I've had a lot. I've had moments where I've had nothing. But see, it doesn't matter whether I have a lot or I have a little. I can do what God's calling me to do because Jesus is the one that's strengthening me to do it. I'm telling you, uh, this is so important because when people pull random verses out of the Bible, and I see this all, people send this stuff to me, and, uh, and it's like, here's this person claiming the Bible is backwards, repressive, racist, blah, 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 sexist. And, and, and it's like, no, 95% of the problems that people have is because they have taken one verse out of context. You know what solves usually the other 5% of things? Now take that passage in context and drop it into its cultural context and understand what was happening in the world around that time and you'll deal with virtually all Bible difficulties. So once again, whenever you're listening to this stuff, you gotta realize that every, every verse in the Bible has a context. And then here's the third thing, and this is huge. And that is, um, ask God to open your eyes. Now, I would encourage you in this, every time you're gonna read the Bible, study the Bible, listen to the Bible, even just look at the Bible devotionally. Just stop and pray for a moment. And don't underestimate the power of asking God to open your eyes to his word, not just give you understanding, but what is it that he wants you to see in particular? There's this wonderful passage in Psalm 119 that says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And by the way, you know what? Some of what God is going to show you when you start reading the Bible, especially early on, he's going to show you how much you don't know. And you know what you do? Here, this, that's okay. Everybody's got to start somewhere. So here's what you do. You take a notepad and you just, as you're reading the Bible, you just start writing down questions. Like what in the world does that mean? Okay. Um, Paul to the Thessalonians. What is a Thessalonian? Right? What it, where is that? Why is he writing? The, you know, any question, you just write it down. And what you're going to find is, is that over the course of time, God is going to bring people into your life. God's going to lead you to a book. Things are going to happen. And th some of those questions are going to start uh, getting answered. So when I first, be I became a Christian at 19, uh, just out of high school. And I had, I was living with my mom and my younger sister in this uh, little townhouse in Coral Springs. And I lived two doors down from this guy named Bill. Uh, Bill wasn't a pastor. Bill was a construction worker that just so happened to attend the church that I started attending. So he had seen me 
um, as, his, as his neighbor, and I knew him as a neighbor, but he saw me at church uh, one weekend, and then uh, went, the next time he saw me in the parking lot of our townhouse development, he's like, hey, Bob, I saw you at church. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my girlfriend and I, we just became uh, believers. You know, I just gave my life to Jesus. And he's like, oh, man, that's great. And um, by the way, that girlfriend is now my wife. So FYI. And, uh, so, and, so, and he says, hey, listen, um, I don't know everything, but if you have any questions as you're reading the Bible, I live two doors down. Just knock on my door, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to answer whatever question you might have. Now, um, you know, looking back, I wonder if he was just being polite. You know, people are like, hey, man, my door's always open. I, don't, I wonder if that's what he meant. But because I was 19 and Cuban, I don't understand nuance. And so... I was just like, oh, that means knock on my door. It means knock on my door. He said, knock on my door anytime. That's what I did. And he, he was married. He had two little kids. I didn't understand anything about uh, like dinner and kids taking baths and bedtime. Understood none of that. It'd be like 730 at night. Bah, 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 bah. And, uh, and I would have, because I'd be right. Remember, I had my, my list. So I had my legal pad and I was writing on my legal pad. And I would wait until I had about 25 questions. You know, you don't want to go over there with two questions. I'm like, let's go with 25 questions. How do we make this last for like six hours? And so anyway, he, does he even have to work tomorrow? I don't know. And so I would knock on the door and, and he'd be like, Bob. And I'm like, hey, you know, you said if I had any questions. So here we are, you know. And, uh, and so he's like, yeah, sure, come on in. So he invites me in. They had just finished eating dinner. His wife is in a total panic. She has no idea I'm coming over. And uh, she was so kind. It's like, hey, you guys just sit down. I'll take care of it. She was awesome. And, um, and so I just then started asking questions. And I'd ask a question and be like, okay, yeah, you want to read this. This chapter will help you understand that. I'm like, okay, great. I'll start writing down some answers. And then, um, you know, if you've been up to upstairs to the offices, you've, some people pop their head in. A lot of people take pictures um, of my office, not just because of all the toys I have, but because of the, you know, I have a few thousand books up there. And, um, and so, but the first couple of books that I ever had in my library are books that Bill gave me. Um, and were books about apologetics, books about understanding um, Bible difficulties or just um, kind of understanding Bible background or whatever. And uh, those are books that he gave me. I still have them. I cherish them. And um, anyway, I remember he was going through. I'm like, yeah, okay, what about this? And I mean, I'm telling you, I was, I was going through. I was going through the Bible. So I started in Genesis. So I remember one time I walked over his house. I had like 30 questions about Leviticus. And um, if you've never read Leviticus, well, you're in for it. And uh, so it, it's, 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 a, it's a doozy. And so anyway, but I remember asking him questions. like, man, I don't know that. That's a good one. All right, I'm going to talk to the pastors at church uh, this weekend, and I'll get, I'll get back to you. And I remember thinking, I'm like, you know those guys. I mean, I've been going to church for like a month or two. I thought those guys were like superheroes. And, um, you know, and then a few years later, I, go through Bible college, I go on staff. I got to know those guys. They weren't superheroes. Uh, they were extremely human. Uh, so, <laughs> and our friends and all that. But anyway, but it's, it's just amazing. Listen, Bill was the mentor that I needed um, early in my walk with God. So let me fast forward a whole bunch of years now. Um, so eventually I end up uh, getting my undergrad in theology and then I got hired at the church that I had, I had been attending. And, um, and so, and I didn't see, I, I, you know, the church was big. So I didn't, I didn't run into Bill for years. And then, you know, I moved away. I got married. Uh, my mom sold that townhouse. And so I, you know, years go by and I, I never hear from Bill uh, again. Um, I come and start Calvary. I don't know, several years into starting the church. 
I get invited by my old church to come and speak on a weekend. And they're like, hey, it'd be great. You kind of grew up here, you know, come, come, come teach the Bible. And so I go and I teach. And then after the service, um, there's this whole line of people waiting to talk to me. And so, and I'm talking and I get to the end of the line and I don't even realize it. I see this guy in like a worker's uniform and construction boots. And, uh, and he says, hi, Bob, do you remember me? And dude, I start crying. And, uh, and I hugged him and, uh, and I said, Bill, not only do I remember, remember you, um, I don't know where I'd be without you. And um, when you ask God to open your eyes, it's not just that God is gonna show you things and he is gonna show you things and it's amazing but God's also gonna bring people into your life at the right moment that are going to invest in your life and do what the Bereans did. They're gonna help you search and study and make your faith unshakable. Well, the problem is the things are going pretty well in Berea until the people from Thessalonica show up, right? We read that. And then they cause an uproar. The, the, the other believers that are there, they take Paul, put him on a ship and ship him out literally and they take them to Athens. And they say, hey, Silas and Timothy, they'll meet you in Athens, but we gotta get you out of here for your safety. Well, look at what happens when Paul gets there in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, or literally Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. If you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you in your outline, if we want to impact people's lives, that we need to give things time. Now, let me, um, Paul ends up in Athens, Greece not by his own design. Things get out of hand in Berea and they send him over uh, to Athens. Paul waiting for Silas and Timothy, he starts walking around the city and the first thing that he notices that we read is that the city is totally given over to idols. There, historically, there's an estimate that there were over 30,000 idols in Athens. The Roman historian Pliny says there were over 70,000 statues dedicated to gods in the city of Athens. Uh, now, the city of Athens was named after the goddess, uh, the Greek goddess Athena, who was the goddess of war and wisdom, according to the Grecian pantheon of gods. Paul goes into the synagogue, as is his custom. He's going to talk to the Jews and Gentiles who believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel, until some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers show up. Now, I want to talk about them for just a second um, just to give you a little bit of a background, like who are these guys? By the way, this teaching creeps into the church um, at, at some, at, later on, and we'll talk about that later. But um, the Epicureans were followers of a philosopher named Epicurus who died around 270 BC. Now, here is, here's the point. Um, he believed that the gods were totally detached from human life, 
The world came into being as a result of total chance. There's no afterlife. There's no point to anything. So the only thing that matters, this was his philosophy, the only thing that matters is personal happiness. That's it. Because everything else, we're going to die tomorrow, so who cares, right? Now, the Stoics were followers of a philosopher named Zeno. Zeno died around the same time, about 265, and believed that the world was created by one supreme God who operated with the other pantheon of, uh, of Greek gods. He believed that happiness is found through not being attached, so living without passion, and that the material world fundamentally was evil. Now, those, weren't the, those were primary philosophers. There were other philosophers, of course. At this time, uh, there were Socratic philosophers. There were Platonic philosophers and a myriad of others. And so they call Paul a babbler, which in our vernacular, a babbler is someone who's just kind of talking a lot and not really saying anything. That's not what this word means in the Greek language and certainly not in this culture. Um, a babbler literally means like a scavenger, but like a scavenger of information. This is someone who doesn't know anything. So like birds picking up seeds, they just pick up these little scraps and try to fit it together to sound smart. Essentially, they're saying that Paul is like an intellectual lightweight. Now, I don't have time to go into Paul's sermon, unfortunately. That will be the topic of our study uh, next time because hands down, this is Paul's most intellectual and sophisticated sermon that he gives in, that's recorded for us uh, in, in the book of Acts. But there's one thing that I want to show you that I think is really important for us uh, that, I, that I want to leave us with. Paul's intention, uh, let me see the map again if I can. Paul's intention was not to go to Athens. If you remember, if you can remember this far back last week, they start their missionary journey. They come to Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. They pick up Timothy. They make their way here, and then they want to go north to Bithynia. But remember, it says the Spirit said they couldn't go to Bithynia. Then he said, I want to go south. And this is Asia Minor. These are all big cities. Ephesus, of course, being the capital uh, city in, in all of these. And all these are churches in the book of Revelation. Um, but instead, they couldn't. So if you're coming from the east and you can't go north, you can't go south, the only way to go is west. So they end up in Troas, and then Paul gets a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. So Paul decides, well, God must want us to go into Macedonia, which is this whole area. They make it to Philippi, which is what we talked about last time. They preach the gospel there, and we talked about that earlier in our, in our message together. Now, here, here comes the, the point. Um, he goes from... Philippi to Thessalonica, things get crazy in Thessalonica, they go to Berea. Things from people from uh, Thessalonica go to Berea, things get crazy, they send them off to Athens. And like I said, Paul is going to give this very sophisticated message in, um, at Mars Hill. And something will happen at Mars Hill in, this, in the aftermath of this message that is going to completely change his ministry. And um, you know what's interesting to me is that Paul is going to leave Athens. He's going to go to Corinth. From Corinth, he's going to go to Ephesus. And here's the question that Paul, I'm sure, was asking. And here's the question that you and I should be asking. Why is it when Paul was here, he says the Spirit didn't let us go to Asia Minor, when all of this ended up coming here, and then he ends up in Ephesus anyway? What, I mean, it's like, why, why are we doing this whole roundabout thing? I just wanted to go to Ephesus anyway. Why did I have to go to Troas, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, to Corinth, only to end up in the place that I wanted to go all along? Because Paul needed his moment in Athens. Because this was the moment that was going to change him. 
Listen when I tell you that there, sometimes the thing that you want to do is in God's will to do. It's just not the time. And timing matters. Timing is the difference between a foul ball and a home run. And it doesn't make sense, right? Because Paul's ministry in Corinth and Ephesus are huge. Major churches are planted in those cities. Paul would write two important New Testament letters in First and Second Corinthians to the Corinthians. He writes the book of Ephesians uh, to the church at Ephesus, which is a theological and practical masterpiece. But all of that comes by way of Athens. Paul is going to give this great message. And no church will be started. Only a handful of people will believe. And most were completely uninterested in Paul's message after he was done. And I'm guessing you've had moments where you found yourself in some type of Athens and you've like, God, what am I doing here? I didn't want to be here. I I wanted to be someplace completely different. And listen, you found yourself in the Athens of your life wondering why God has you here and and you had plans for something else. But all I can tell you is, is that there are lessons to be learned in Athens that can be learned nowhere else. The last couple of weeks for our family have been uh, pretty intense. I I missed last Sunday because I was sick. I had every intention of being here and delivering this message to you. Um, It's only the second Sunday in 23 years that I've ever missed for being sick. So this doesn't happen very often. And I've got to be kind of knocking on death's door for me not to be here. But anyway, um, but I wasn't feeling well on Sunday. Monday, I wasn't feeling great, but my wife started feeling ill. And then at church on Sunday, my daughter Livy sprained her ankle. So the first thing Monday morning, I took her to urgent care um, to get an x-ray and all that. And then she wasn't feeling well. My wife wasn't feeling well. I'm still not feeling great. And then uh, Monday night, I end up taking my wife to the ER because she's so sick and dehydrated. And so I take her over to, um, and by the way, I don't know if you've ever done that, like urgent care in the morning and ER at night. Um, I, I think the trifecta would be like a funeral home in the afternoon. I don't know. But I got to the ER and where they, they were doing the check-in. I asked if they had a rewards program. And, uh, and I'm like, do you guys have anything? Like nine visits, your next operation is free. And the lady was like, no, we don't have anything like that. And I'm like, okay, well, let me email you the definition of a joke. Um, so anyway, so I, uh, anyway, we see the doctor and they IV her and give Carrie a bunch of stuff. And so she starts feeling better. Then they send us home. Within an hour of being home, all three of my kids start vomiting almost in concert. Um, and, and, and we're up all night, uh, with the three kids throwing up and and everything. And, but truth be told, all of it started the Thursday before, because the Thursday before, uh, we had to take my daughter Mia to the emergency room because she, something, she ate something, um, and started having an allergic reaction and, um, she started swelling up. And now if you don't know this, um, maybe you, you probably know this if you've been around Calvary for a long time, but. Um, when Mia, she's almost 17, but when she was three, uh, she almost died because of an allergic reaction she had to something that ended up developing into something that's called Steven Johnson syndrome, which is a very serious condition that has only a 5% survival rate. And uh, I'm grateful that God healed her and that she was, um, uh, she was fine. And, um, but Thursday, that, this past Thursday, or the Thursday before, um, we took her to the ER because it was, it was starting the exact way it did almost 14 years ago. And, um, and, and let me tell you that all of those feelings, all of those feelings started coming back. All of those fears started coming back that I had when I was sitting 
next to her bed in uh, the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, begging God, desperate, that God would heal my daughter. And, um, and, and I got to be honest with you, the question that I was asking is, why am I back here? And I'm praying, and I'm like, God, this is the one place that I never wanted to come back to. This is the one place I never wanted to come back to. But see, for me, in my life, this, this Athens is the place of total surrender. To total, totally surrender to God that God is going to do for my daughter, for my family, what I could never do on my own. Listen, sometimes God takes you there. He takes you to those Athens places in your life because there are things that can only be learned there. And when you learn them, the doors that you wanted to see open, open. Because listen, God, your heavenly father, he wants to bless you even more than you want to be blessed. But what he wants is for the blessing not to be a burden because you can't handle it. So we have to learn the lesson of Athens so that the season of blessing can come later. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. We're grateful that, Lord, you take us even when we feel like we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Your promise is that you're still going to be with us no matter what. And so, Lord, I pray if we find ourselves in the Athens of life, God, help us. Help us to get through, to learn what we need to, to get the wisdom necessary to then experience the blessing that you have for us. God, that's our hope. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.